Hi, my name is Taylor Edwards, intern for the Angus Beef Bulletin, and I'm here with the June 7th, 2023 edition of the Angus Beef Bulletin Extra. I'm going to read to you some of this edition's top stories. The first story I'm going to read for you today can be found on the front page of the Extra and is called, Do Heifers Have More Potential Value Than Steers? This story is brought to us by Aaron Berger, a Nebraska Extension Beef Educator. For cow-calf producers who understand and leverage a heifer's value potential, steers are great for providing income, but heifers can be used to generate wealth. When going out to tag calves, most cow-calf producers would prefer to find a bull calf rather than a heifer. This is logical given that the bull calf, which in most cases will become a steer, will weigh more and bring more money per pound when selling at weaning than heifer herd mates born at the same time. In the feed yard, steer calves grow faster, are more efficient, and finish at heavier weights, providing greater pounds to sell at harvest. Steer performance justifies the premiums paid for steers over heifers. For the cow-calf producer, though, could heifers have more potential value than steers? Heifer calves provide more options and opportunities than bull calves. To produce calves, you need heifers and relatively few bulls. While the bull is important genetically, he doesn't contribute much to the environmental factors that influence success in the production of calves. The cow provides and delivers the vast majority of what a calf needs from conception to weaning. Heifer calves give cow-calf producers several marketing options. They can be sold at weaning, they can be retained and exposed for breeding, non-pregnant heifers can be sold as feeders, pregnant calves can be retained in the herd or sold as bred heifers, Retained bred heifers enter the herd and generate income from the calves they produce. They can also be sold as young to middle-aged bred cows when they're often at their peak value. When raised heifers retained more than 24 months for breeding purposes are sold as bred females or coal cows. They provide additional tax advantages as their sale is taxed at a capital gains rate rather than as ordinary income. This is a significant benefit due to these dollars being taxed at a lower rate than ordinary income and capital gains income not being subject to self-employment tax. Obviously, the cattle market and long-term cattle cycle comes into play in this discussion when looking at the value of a bull calf versus a heifer calf. The retained heifer calves that will generate the most value are the ones that produce calves when prices are high and then are sold themselves as a bred cow or for harvest when prices are near their cyclical peak. Market conditions in the long-term cattle cycle significantly affect the potential lifetime value that will be generated by a heifer calf. Which is preferable, a bull calf or a heifer calf? It really depends on if the cow-calf operation is structured to benefit from the value prospects that heifers provide. There can be tremendous opportunities to capture value from heifers when working with market conditions and capitalizing on the tax advantages. For cow-calf producers who understand and leverage a heifer's value potential, steers are great for providing income, but heifers can be used to generate wealth. As an editor's note, this story was reprinted with permission from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Beef Watch newsletter. Aaron Berger is a beef educator for Nebraska Extension. Following this story on the front page of our Angus Beef Bulletin Extra Edition, we have our News and Notes section that includes information on a new hire at Low Carbon Technologies, a few USDA news items and updates, and a podcast episode by the Angus Conversation crew about bovine congestive heart failure. There's also a story about registration for the Feeding Quality Forum hosted by Certified Angus Beef. Up next in our management section, we have an article by Becky Mills, one of our field editors, 
about a demonstration that was done down in Florida regarding forage soybeans. This article is titled, Forage Soybeans Ready to Look. Florida demonstration finds high-protein, high-fat feed stuff grown and harvested for $91 per ton as fed. No doubt you got the memo. Paying the feed bill is painful. To add to the stress, supply chain issues make availability a dicey proposition. As a result, University of Florida cattle nutrition specialist Nicholas DiLorenzo is looking at non-traditional feeds. Last summer, it was silage made from forage soybeans. With the development of new varieties, we decided it was time to reevaluate its potential as a silage crop, DiLorenzo says. To keep it simple and timely, he did a demonstration rather than a full-scale research trial. July 23, 2022, he and his co-workers planted 35 acres of forage soybeans under irrigation at the North Florida Research and Education Center in Mariana. It was a prime example of efficient land use. The soybean seed was drilled directly into the residue of a corn crop that was harvested as silage in mid-July. They fertilized with 100 units of potash, 40 units of phosphorus, and 60 units of nitrogen. Later in the growing season, they sprayed twice with boron and sprayed a herbicide and an insecticide for the control of worms. With seed costs of $38 an acre, fertilizer, herbicide, and insecticide, as well as planting and scouting, the total cost in 2022 was $343 an acre. On October 27th, they harvested six tons of green chopped silage per acre for a total cost of $57 a ton. Total harvest costs were $34 a ton, which included mowing, chopping, and bagging. The total harvest from the 35 acres was 210 tons of forage soybeans with 36.7% dry matter. With the cost of growing the crop plus harvesting it, the total cost was $91 per ton as fed, or $249 per ton of dry matter. Nutritive Value After the forage soybeans were ensiled for more than 90 days, a feed analysis was done by a commercial lab. On a dry matter basis, the nutrient content was 18% crude protein, 8.9% crude fat, 3.4% starch, 30.2% neutral detergent fiber, 27% ash, and 57% total digestible nutrients. Those last two values were a bit surprising, said DiLorenzo. He speculates that they set the cutting height too low to try to get as many of the pods as possible. However, he adds, it's rare to see soybean silage exceed 60% total digestible nutrients on a dry matter basis. Lessons learned. After their first go at ensiling forage soybeans at NFREC, DiLorenzo recommends, if possible, plant earlier than late July to maximize the harvest yield. I think the optimal time to plant is probably May or June, but for planting as a following crop, mid-July is probably fine. Research the best variety to plant. The differences in germplasm can greatly affect crop performance. Adjust the cutting height to avoid harvesting soil and diluting the energy. Harvest when the bottom leaves begin turning yellow to maximize yield and quality. Use an inoculant designed for legumes to help ferment it and minimize losses, particularly during the feed-out phase. Take-home message. No doubt, $249 per tons of dry matter is a large investment, says DiLorenzo. However, he says the cost looks better when it's put in terms of 77 tons of high-quality forage dry matter with 18% crude protein and 8.9% fat harvested in one day from 35 acres. 
Better yet, the silage was stored in an 84-foot long by 12-foot diameter silage bag, eliminating the need for a silo. DiLorenzo emphasizes this was a demonstration, not a research study. And more research needs to be done on optimal planting dates, fertilization rates, production timing, and cost of production. However, he adds, given the price of protein supplements, the practice of ensiling forage soybean rates, another look. Initially, I was very skeptical, but there might be some room for ensiled forage soybeans, says the UF animal scientist. We don't get much growing in the southeast with that kind of protein. It could be a good substitute for distiller's grain, he adds. That ensiled forage soybeans would probably work best for growing cattle, probably mix 50-50 with corn silage. As an editor's note, Becky Mills is a freelance writer and cattlewoman from Georgia. Be sure to check out the other two stories in this week's management section. The first is called Progressive Angus Breeders Tout Marbling with Balance. This is written by Paige Nelson, one of our field editors, and discusses breeding with marbling in mind. And the other is called Using Cover Crops to Improve Soil Health and Increase Forage Production. You can find these at www.angusbeefbulletin.com forward slash extra. Moving into our health and nutrition section, we're going to get a beef cattle research update from Oklahoma State University Extension Livestock Specialist Britt Hicks. This research update is regarding bunk space requirements for growing beef cattle limit fed a high energy diet. Research has shown limit-feeding high-energy diets can improve feed efficiency in growing calves compared with traditional high-roughage diets fed as needed. Since grain generally costs less per unit of energy than roughage, limit-feeding may reduce the feed costs of grain. A concern associated with limit-feeding is that bunk requirements may need to be increased when feed is restricted in order to ensure all cattle can eat simultaneously. Data from a commercial feed yard suggests the bunk allotments of 9 inches per head allowed 55% of cattle to eat at once, while 12 inches per head allowed 75% of cattle to eat at once. The current recommendation for 400 to 800 pound beef calves fed once daily is 18 to 22 inches of bunk per calf. Kansas State University researchers conducted an experiment with the objective of evaluating the effects of bunk space allotment on growth performance of growing calves limit-fed a high-energy corn and corn co-product diet during a 58-day receiving period. An additional objective in the trial was to determine if bunk space allotment during the receiving period affected subsequent growth performance during a 90-day grazing season in the Kansas Flint Hills. In this experiment, 385 crossbred steers were purchased in Texas and transported to the Kansas State Beef Stocker Unit. The steers were stratified by body weight and randomly assigned to one of four bunk allotment treatments, 10, 15, 20, or 25 inches of bunk per head for the 58-day receiving period. The steers were fed 1.8% of body weight on a dry matter basis once daily at 7 a.m. using a Roto-Mix feed wagon for the first 39 days. They were fed 2% of body weight thereafter. The diet contained 39.5% dry rolled corn, 7.5% supplement, 40% wet corn gluten feed, and 13% prairie hay on a dry matter basis. Steers were individually weighed on days 29 and 58, and pin weights were measured weekly to determine feed offered for the following week. Following the receiving period, steers were blocked by bunk space treatment, randomly assigned to one of the 18 pastures, and grazed for 90 days. 
The effects of bunk space allotment on performance of limit-fed growing calves during the 58-day receiving period are shown in Table 1. The authors reported that body weights, dry matter intake, and feed-to-gain ratios during the receiving period did not differ significantly between treatments. Average daily gain increased linearly with increased bunk space for the first 29 days. However, no trends were observed thereafter. These results agree with previous research that demonstrated limit-fed diets with bunk allotments of 5 to 24 inches per calf did not affect growth performance during growing or finishing periods. Similarly, the commercial feed yard data showed that bunk allotments of 9 or 12 inches of bunk per head did not affect performance of limit-fed heifers fed twice daily. More recent research that showed bunk allotments of 8 or 34 inches per head did not affect final body weight, dry matter intake, average daily gain, or feed-to-gain ratio following an 84-day growing period when steers were fed twice daily using the slick bunk protocol. In addition, overall total body weight gains and average daily gain from the receiving and grazing periods did not differ between bunk treatments. During the grazing season, average daily gain increased linearly with reduced bunk allotment. However, body weights did not differ between bunk treatments at the completion of the grazing period. In conclusion, this data suggests that bunk allotments of 10, 15, 20, or 25 inches per head had minimal effect on growth performance of growing calves limited high-energy corn and corn co-product diet during a 58-day receiving period. Reduced bunk space during the receiving period was associated with increased average daily gain during the subsequent 90-day grazing season. However, final body weight and overall body weight gains following the receiving period and grazing season did not differ between bunk treatments. Thus, under limit-fed conditions, bunk allotments of 10 inches per head may be used to maximize pen capacity without reducing performance during the growing period. As an editor's note, Britt Hicks is an extension specialist with Oklahoma State University. In addition to this article in our health and nutrition section, we have an article covering hairy heel warts and how they affect both beef and dairy cattle. There's also a piece that I did covering a recent Angus at Work podcast about not feeding cows like you did 20 years ago to keep up with the continued genetic improvements that the Angus breed has made. So be sure to check out both of those stories as well. Our final story this week comes from our marketing page, and it is called Adding Value to Your Calf Crop. The easiest way to describe value-add programs is like a stair step. To climb up the ladder, you have to climb the steps, said Superior Livestock Representative Clint Berry. You can't go from ground floor to step five without the others. The fifth-generation cattleman was featured in a webinar hosted by the Texas and Southwestern Cattle Raisers Association in April emphasizing that what works for one outfit may not work for others. Barry spoke about value-added programs for domestic and export markets. Step 1 is the Source and Age program, created after discovery of a case of bovine spongiform encephalopathy in the United States in 2003, locked U.S. beef out of the Japanese market. Trade eventually opened to beef from cattle verified to be less than 20 months of age. The requirement is now 30 months. Most cattle harvested in the United States are 30 months or younger, so the age requirement is not critical, but the source is critical in a lot of these programs, explained Barry. IMI's global data show that producers are gaining $3.50 per hundred weight on cattle in this program. 
Step two, said Barry, is NHTC or non-hormone treated cattle. If you're rolling in NHTC, you can't implant cattle. They also have to be third-party verified and tagged with electronic identification tags to be eligible for export. NHTC Verified was created so we could send product to the European Union, he said, calling it an export program. Just because you don't implant does not make those cattle NHTC. They have to be third-party verified. The next step, step three, is Verified Natural. This is a domestic program created for our domestic supply, Barry said. It's a classification that means no hormones, no implants, no antibiotics of any kind, and no ionophores. These products are found in lick tubs, mineral, and feed rations. If you're buying feed from the co-op, you need to read labels, Barry cautioned. Verified natural is a never-ever scenario. Those cattle can never have any of those additives in their lifetime. It is third-party audited as well. In most cases, if cattle are verified natural, they're also NHTC because they aren't implanted. But sometimes, he said, we see some NHTC cattle that are not verified natural because they had an antibiotic or an ionophore in their feed ration, but they weren't implanted, so they're still NHTC verified. The next step, said Barry, moves into social programs like Where Food Comes From Care Certified and Global Animal Partnership GAP Certified. GAP was created by Whole Foods Market. All GAP products target the Whole Foods Market supply chain, which was purchased by Amazon. To market beef through this store, producers must be enrolled in the GAP program. Those cattle have to be natural and raised under those standards. They don't have to be verified natural. You can have producers' affidavits, but you need to have a GAP audit to verify it. Most of the time, if they're GAP, they're also verified natural. And if they're verified natural, they're also NHTC. And if they're NHTC, they're also source NHT, he explained. Two years ago, IMI Global launched Beef Care Certified, a program for sustainability. This is a domestic program, but the difference between it and GAP is refreshing, in my opinion, because it was created by beef producers to tell our story on how we raise cattle versus a, re versus a retailer telling producers how they want us to raise our cattle, states Barry. While Barry said he doesn't think any of the GAP practices are wrong, he views the flexibility of approaching beef husbandry from a science basis as an advantage. Some GAP requirements are not science-based, he said, but rather their emotional salesmanship. That's fine if someone wants to raise cattle that way and get paid for it, said Barry, adding, yet if we all implanted some of those strategies, it would have a negative effect on production. Beef care allows producers to sell cattle that are natural, GAP, NHTC, etc., or none of those. Beef care cattle have been conventionally fed and could have a few calves on the load that had to be doctored as babies had an ionophore in their feed ration, or were implanted. But they're still beef care cattle because they're following the protocols of that program, which meets the social, environmental, and humane handling criteria. I applaud that effort because this is the first time in 25 years of marketing that I've seen a program that wasn't a requirement of non-scientific-based production models. In the past, a value-added program often took away a science-based technology, and beef care did not do that. I'm excited to see how that program grows in the next few years. Barry likened value-added programs to a railroad track. Walk on one side or the other and you'll be fine. Walk down the middle and sooner or later you get run over. The natural route takes away some of the science and technologies that add production efficiency, but offer the opportunity to capture premiums for those third-party evaluated programs, or raise conventional cattle and get all the benefit from implants and antibiotics when needed and ionophores for feed efficiency so you're getting paid for more pounds. 
Look at your production model and what works for you, Barry advised. Will you take the easy pounds with implants or go the other route? Don't remove science and technology without stepping onto the audited side where you can capture that premium. Walking down the middle, you lose on both ends. As an editor's note, Heather Smith Thomas is a freelance writer and cattlewoman from Salmon, Ohio. That concludes the stories I'm going to be reading to you today from this edition of the Angus Beef Bulletin Extra. To read the remaining articles, visit www.angusbeefbulletin.com forward slash extra. Also, check out our podcast, Angus at Work. You can find that on the Extras tab on the website or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, I'm Taylor Edwards, and it's been my pleasure to read you these stories today. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions on how we can improve, reach out to our email at abbeditorial at angus.org. Thank you.